This is the Tan Talk Radio Network, AM 1340, WTAN. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport, 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. May 1909, John Fane. John Fane stops at nothing. Bank robberies, train robberies, and killing. Fane and his gang raided the McCandles ranch and kidnapped little Jake McCandles. They held him for one million dollars in ransom. They weren't afraid of the army and they weren't afraid of the Texas Rangers. And they thought his grandfather, Big Jake McCandles, was dead. He wasn't. It took a million dollar kidnapping to bring Big Jake back home to his family, to his son, James. Good morning, Daddy. Daddy? Daddy. Daddy. Son, since you haven't learned to respect your elders, it's time you learn to respect your betters. His son, Michael. You hurt? No. And to his wife, Martha. I was wrong. You haven't changed, have you, Jacob McCandles? Not one bit. Big Jake took his two sons, a half-blind Apache and a wild dog, deep into Mexico. One way or another, they had to pay off John Fane and his gang. You got to deliver that box to us. You got to put it right in our hands. Somebody takes that box away from you. We won't be understanding. We won't wait. We won't try again. I'll just send that boy's body back to you in a basket. You understand? Every cutthroat killer, every two-bit thief tried getting that red box. Instead, they got Big Jake and his two sons. There's a little eight-year-old boy somewhere out there, scared and lonely and probably wondering what's happened to his world. We came here to find him and take him home, alive if possible. Now you understand. Anything goes wrong, anything at all. Your fault, my fault, nobody's fault. It don't matter. I'm gonna blow your head off. It's as simple as that. So one night in May, 
Big Jake McCandless at a final showdown with John Fane and his gang. Who are you? Jacob McCandle. I thought you was dead. Not hardly. Hi, this is Sam Posey, racing driver, writer, architect. Tune in for Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Set the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Not to mention, we are YouTubed. Good evening there, Mr. Tommy. How are you? Oh, still recovering from the Mustang anniversary party. Show. Oh, you, <laughs> you know what? I was uh, at, I was going to go to the Mustang anniversary, the local uh, event that they had, but something came up for some strange reason. I think I was out of town that day, which was on Wednesday, 17th. My wife and I had to go look at some stuff, but at any rate. But it was a good show, and those guys had a really good time. So anyway, tonight we got a great show for you tonight. we got another gentleman coming on the show this evening who's been on our show before. And uh, he's really, really, really into, well, he's a legendary, he has super lineage in the NASCAR world. And uh, so we've got some interesting NASCAR people coming on here down the pike. And uh, this gentleman was on our show about a year or so ago. Fascinating guy, fascinating stories, uh, legendary engine builder, uh, a true NASCAR historian, actually has his own show, a radio show, where he actually goes around and he actually interviews uh, a number of people, a number of the racing greats, okay? Now, again, I, you know, when you always hear me talk about that, keep in mind, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So to me, those are the drivers, those are the racers, those are the teams, those are the cars. You know, to me, that's true NASCAR. You know, even before then, you know, before my time, the 50s and, and I think in the late 40s, which is when NASCAR really got off the, off the ground, at least in the south, uh, south here. So let's just say North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and um, Tennessee and places like that, Alabama. But NASCAR is fascinating. I mean, I, I, I liked it in the old days. Those are the cars that I can relate to because you could tell a Ford when you saw a Ford, and you knew a Chevy when you saw a Chevy, and you knew a Mopar when you saw a Mopar, and that was pretty much it. Okay. Uh, there was no Toyotas. There was no discussions of uh, Nissan or Mercedes or anybody else there jumping in a NASCAR thing. I mean, that's just something that just kind of like, you know, it's a Southern thing, I guess, you know. But NASCAR's cool, you know. I mean, yeah, we always make fun of it, and we say it's, uh, you know, redneck racing and go fast, turn left and stuff. But there's a lot of talent and a lot of skill and a lot of, uh, you know, race car drivers. I was over at a friend of mine's house here not so long ago, and, uh, and he's a former engineer, good friend of mine. And he has, his wife is a huge Tony Stewart fan, okay. So they had Tony Stewart's 2008, in fact, my buddy IG was over there with me. And uh, this gentleman lives out in the country. He's got a garage. He has some beautiful cars there. He's got a beautiful Auburn. Actually, he's got more than one Auburn. He's got a beautiful Studebaker convertible. It's just some amazing cars. But one of the cars in the garage was this NASCAR, this Stewart Chevrolet uh, 2008 NASCAR. And 
So we were looking at the car, and then Mike says, and his wife Judy, she says, well, why don't you go ahead and crawl inside and sit inside it? I go, okay. So I sat inside. Now, I had a 80s NASCAR of my own at one point. I had a 19... I actually ended up with, didn't realize I had it at the time, but I did find out ultimately. And uh, But I had the 1984, 83-84 Gatorade car, which in 1984 was the... Um, Gatorade car that Rusty Wallace drove, and that was the year I believe he won Rookie of the Year. Now, that NASCAR was pretty cool. Um, a lot of cages, a lot of reinforcement in that car, but you still had a lot of room. You were in there. The 60s and 70s cars, pretty much just a seat, a loop, and uh, you know a, a, a padded steering wheel that was basically foam with like electrical tape wrapped around it. Pretty crude, okay? And then you go back into the 50s, and it even gets cruder yet, you know? So, you know, you heard me talking about on the show and many of the drivers, you know, they were safety wasn't a big issue back then, you know, but it's it's huge now. So anyway, fast forward to this uh, Tony Stewart car, this 2008 car. I sat in there. It's got the racing seat. It's set up for Hans device. Uh, there's no room in there. And what's interesting, what you don't realize, you might see it on TV because they have a lot of in-car cameras. In fact, this car was set up for an in-car camera as well. In-car camera and for the driver and the whole nine yards. So not only do you see what's going on in the in the driver's cockpit, but you also see what's going on in front of you as well. And obviously, if you follow TV, you'll see a lot of that stuff. And uh, so it was pretty cool. But it was very, very cozy and very, very, from my perspective, and I'm more of a road racer kind of guy slash, you know, drag racer. And... Um, but in road racing, even now, the cars are extremely tight. I mean, you, you're in there snug, very, very snug. Well, you, in, a, in a road race car, your, your arms are stretched out a little bit and your elbows have a little bit of a kink. But if you ever watch the NASCAR guys, they almost sit right on the steering wheel. Now, it just, now, you think about this. Hold your arms, wrap them on a steering wheel, just kind of have them hanging there, but you got a firm grip on it. Okay, do that for about uh, 500 miles. You know, at about 170, 180 miles an hour, 150 mile an hour average or something like that, wherever they go. And uh, it's you, you don't do not ever think that a race car driver is not an athlete and they're not fit because it gets extremely hot in those cars. It gets 150, 200 degrees. Some cases they have hot suits or what they call cool suits. Now, maybe not 200 degrees, but it gets pretty warm in there. Okay, 130, 140 degrees is probably not uncommon. And, you know, they're in there, and they're trapped in that car for whatever the duration is. Road racers, usually two-hour stints at a time. NASCAR, you've watched them, you know, an hour, two hours, or whatever that is. They come in for a pit, stop, you know, get a couple drinks or something, or sips or something. But, you know, race car drivers definitely, definitely are athletes and definitely have to be fit. There's no question about that. So we're going to get into that a little bit tonight, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the contrasts. You know, what it was like back in the old days. Um, the gentleman's got some great stories, so I'm looking forward to having him on the show. So for the next 30 minutes or 40 minutes or so, uh, stick around. The show's going to be quite interesting. Uh, I'll, do a, I'll do a couple little quick shout-outs here. Um, FLACarshows.com. If you want to find out where all the car shows are that are going this week, next week, and the week after, definitely check out, or in the whole state of Florida, FLACarshows.com. I want to give a big shout-out to... Uh, a gentleman I just met today who actually I knew his dad. Um, these are some people that I know that work for Loki Motors. Loki is obviously at one point was Oldsmobile and Mercedes, and now they're Loki Nissan, Loki Volkswagen, Loki Kia, Loki, 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 Loki. But uh, Mark Saxon was uh, gracious enough to give me a hand here. As you know, I do appraisal, pre-purchase inspections, diminished values, okay? And every once in a while, I get some pretty cool cars. Well, I'm working on a 2019 Mercedes G63. That's an AMG decked out G63 uh, we would call it in German, it's called a Geländewagen, but it's our SUV. It's our top of the line. This is like a $200,000, $230,000 truck. Now, it's called a AMG 63 
Um, edition one, and I found out today, and I, I'm amazed I didn't have, wasn't able to find all the information, but Mark Saxon over there at uh, Loki was able to give me some information on it, uh, provided me with some other data that I needed. And apparently the way it works in Mercedes-Benz, the edition ones, if there's a new body style coming out, so it might be an S-Class, it might be a GT-Class, might be a C-Class, um, in this case it's a G-Class, the edition one is a limited production, they're all kind of like a stealthy black color with some unique trim and unique features, and that's the first model of a new year. So that's pretty cool. So when they come out with a new bottle, when they introduce a new car, they call it Edition 1. And it's kind of, they used to have what they call the Black Series, which is, you know, the, the flat black deals, kind of like a big thing for the last seven or eight years. And us, in my world, it's old school hot rodding, flat black, you know, but uh, nowadays um, people kind of dig it, you know. So whether it's a black or a gray or a, or a white or red, these kind of like flat colors, they're pretty cool. But anyway, so my uh, my shout out tonight goes to Mark Sexton. Hey, if give him a call there at Loki Mercedes, 727-374-2307. Nice guy. And, uh, you know, he should help you out when you want to buy your next Mercedes-Benz right here in Loki. Also, a big shout-out to my friend uh, Matthew Jones down at McLaren because I'm also appraising a McLaren Senna, one of 500 made. Oh, yeah, extremely fast car. In fact, this weekend, I think it's on Friday, those of you can make it, I'm not exactly sure how it works down there, but Dimmit is having what they call a Sebring track day, and it's for current and past McLaren owner. So if you've got a McLaren, whether you've got a 570, a 620, a Senna, um, or, uh, you know, McLaren, uh, the first one that came out, the big bad boy with the big 12-cylinder BMW engine, you're welcome to come down to Sebring for track day and watch these uh, guys and their McLarens drive their cars on the track. Now, it's not racing. It's just track day, which means you get out there and you get to get your car up to speed and have a lot of fun. So that's pretty cool. Next month, uh, for all you motorcycle guys up at uh, St. Augustine is Riding in the History. We may have uh, some people come on, talk a little bit about that. I go to that every year, just about. That's the big motorcycle, vintage motorcycle display, concourse, collection. Just a, It's just kind of a fun weekend with some really cool bikes. So we'll be talking about that in the next week or two. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, you know shoes are expensive. I usually keep them on the bottom of my feet. So a uh, big shout-out to my friends over there at Midway Shoe Repair. Um, Jacob over there, if you need your soles changed, I'm trying to think how he, how the little sign on his wall goes, something about heal your soul or something to that effect. But anyway, give him a shout over there, 727-581-2166. That's uh, Midway Shoe Repair. I think uh, Tommy's got something on the turntable for us, so uh, Tommy, why don't you... Uh oh, little uh, Neil Young here. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, don't touch that dial. Here's a little heart of gold for you.
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert, again. Um, you know, it's funny because um, I've been in a lot of races, but I've only been to one NASCAR race. Yep, that was the Firecracker 400. Gosh, I don't even know when that was. Sometime in the 80s, and I remember, I think it was like the third lap. Uh, I know AJ Foyt was in there, and the Pearson, and, you know, one of my heroes, and uh, a couple other guys, Petty, obviously, the big-name guys. And somebody did something, and they balled up, like, I think it took out, like, a third of the field. But they were everywhere. And what the cool part about it was, it was, we were in the stands, and it was coming off the last turn before they get into turn one. Well, at least in road race terms. But coming across, uh, just coming right around pit road there. And uh, they just scattered and went everywhere. And unless you've been to a NASCAR race and seen it actually happen, I know we all like to go see the crashes and stuff, because that's the fun stuff about, you know, NASCAR. Um but racing's racing, you know, so uh, obviously you don't want to see anybody get crashed or hurt. But a little rubbing is okay. That's what they say, rubbing's racing. Uh, you know, I, didn't, I could have played that clip. I didn't play that clip. That was the one from uh, Days of Thunder. But at any rate, uh, Rebel 250. All right, I just got a text here. Rebel 250. Well, wait a minute. No, I think in, this, in July it was called the Firecracker 400 back in the day. This was in the 80s. I don't know. Anyway, so, uh, but NASCAR racing is kind of cool. You know, again, don't uh, don't discount the fact that those guys are not athletes because they certainly are. you got to be fit. In fact, I was at the Formula One race at COTA, which is uh, the Circuits of America in uh, Austin, Texas, about three years ago. That was the year that I slammed into the wall. It wasn't a wall. Actually, I was in a hurry to get out the pit row to see the last two seconds or two minutes of the race, and I walked into a glass partition and uh, busted my nose. Yeah, well, I didn't break it, but I uh, it ripped the skin. I mean, I was in it with stitches and all kinds of other cool stuff. They had to glue it back together. Literally, I mean, glue it back together because I didn't want stitches. But at any rate, um, but I met Mark Martin there, and uh, Mark was pretty cool. And, um, you know, not a big guy, but very, very fit. In fact, I think at the time, he was in his 50s when he retired, but uh, he used to talk about it all the time. He was portrayed as the most fit NASCAR driver back in the day. So he was one of the early guys that really, really, really was into the athletics 
the athletic side of it to stay fit because uh, it's it's grueling. It's very demanding when you're inside that little when you're trapped inside that race car. But um, anyway, let's see what did uh, we do this past weekend? I don't even know. Oh, cars and coffee, cars and coffee. Define cars and coffee was Saturday, and then after that we all went down to Dimmit and uh, continued the cars and coffee. And that's some pretty cool cars. We walked around and looked at some of the cars in the showroom. That's some pretty neat stuff over there. And uh, so if you get a chance, you know, make it to that. That's pretty cool. But the thing I like about Dimmit is, is they actually have Krispy Kreme donuts. Because Krispy Kreme is right down on 4th Street. And uh, so when you have Krispy Kremes and coffee and latte and, you know, uh, bagels and, and juices and all kinds of stuff like that, that's a pretty, that, their hospitality there is absolutely spectacular. You know, it's kind of like the first, and it's the third Sunday of the month, or third Saturday of the month. Reeves does uh, equally as good a job over there when they have their cars and coffee, which is the first Saturday of the month. And they have a gentleman that shows up there every uh, month and he cooks live fresh beignets right there. I mean they're delicious. So, but the thing about the cars and coffee is, it's a place for kind of like real car guys to show up and hang out. So it's not racing. They're basically what they call meetups. And then uh, there's a girl by the name of Tiffany. We'll give her a little shout out and her uh, Tiffany Moore and her her dad Robbie Moore, a friend of mine. He's a drummer. He's in music. He's a musician. And uh, they do I think what's called street scene, the Tampa Bay street scene, and they have a meetup meetup, you know, where guys get together and cool cars show up, every Monday night at uh, Quaker Steak and Lube, or as I refer to them, Goobers and Lubers. And, um, but on that night, it's not Goobers and Lubers. It's only Goobers and Lubers on Thursday nights. But on uh, street scene night, it's, uh, it's got some pretty serious tuna cars that show up there. I mean, you know, uh, you'll see a couple GTRs rolling there, and it's not uncommon for a GTR to have uh, anywhere between 500 to, well, they're 500, bu- 500 horsepower out of the box, but some of those are got uh, some of those guys got like 11, 12, 13, 1400 horsepower. That's some serious stuff. These guys are getting unbelievable horsepower out of uh, these little, uh, what I would call sewing machine engines or, you know, little four bangers, you know. But uh, hey, technology's there, so go for it. So not only do they get the horsepower out of them, no torque, obviously, because they're, you know, they're anemic in the uh, cylinder department, but boy, they sure wind up and scream. And uh, in fact, we were talking about that the other day about some of these uh, IndyCar motors and, uh, Formula One engines, and I didn't. I knew that some of them went to 9,000, 10,000, 11,000 RPMs, you know. But some of these are telling me that some of the F1 engines, the really, really ones, the real good ones that are dialed in, those things are turning like 15, 16, 17,000 RPMs. That's hard to believe. An internal combustion engine whipping around there at 16, 17,000 RPMs. But anyway, I think what we're going to do is let's see what's going on. Any races coming up here soon? Uh, no, but uh, 24 Hour Le Mans will be up in uh, another month, and of course, the Indy 500. And then, of course, the big event for this year uh, in August is the two events one, if you're going to Michigan, you got the Woodward Dream Cruise, and of course, Monterey Collector Car Week. So that's the big stuff. And then there's all kinds of stuff going on in between now and then. And we'll probably keep you informed as to some of those. But in the meantime, I think uh, Tommy's going to fire up the turntable again. We're going to play a little Marty Robbins. And then we're going to call and get our guests on the line. So, hey, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. And you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hardly spoke to folks around him. Didn't have too much to say. No one dared to ask his business. No one dared to make a slip. The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip, big iron on his heel. It was early in the morning when he rode into the town. He came riding from the south side, slowly looking all around. 
He's an outlaw loose and running came the whisper from each lip And he's here to do some business with the big iron on his hip Big iron on his hip In this town there lived an outlaw by the name of Texas Red Many men had tried to take him and that many men were dead He was vicious and a killer though a youth of 24 And the notches on his pistol numbered one in 19 more One in 19 more Now the strangers started talking made it plain to folks around Was an Arizona ranger wouldn't be too long in town he came here to take an outlaw back alive or maybe dead And he said it didn't matter, he was after Texas Red After Texas Red Gunsmoke, starring James Arness as Matt Dillon Starring Chuck Connors. Keep moving, 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 though they're disapproving. Keep them doggies moving. the card of a man A knight without armor in a savage land His fast gun for hire heeds the calling wind A soldier of fortune is the man called Paladin Paladin
we're back, and you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And uh, hey, uh, Tommy, you want to play that liner one more time? <laughs> we had a liner here, and for some reason, I think I. Uh, hey, I, I'm Dave Despain from Wind Tunnel on Speed. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I think I edited it down too much, but uh, anyway, all right, so uh, we're back, and you tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. guess we won't use that one again, uh, or at least I get uh, the, other, the other version. But anyway, it's time to introduce our special guest for the afternoon. This gentleman is legendary engine builder and NASCAR historian. I'm delighted to welcome back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Bill Blair Jr. Bill, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you again, Robert. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, I, when we were on the show, when you were on the show last year, uh, I was so inspired, and you know, the stories were just so, you know, let's just say, uh, you know, with so much feeling, so much, uh, you know, emotion, and and you know, because you were there, you know, so uh, I just thought, man, I got to get you back on the show and talk a little bit more about that because the stories are really, really touching. People don't realize, you know, I was talking about this earlier, you know. NASCAR guys are athletes. They're committed. They're car guys. I mean, you know, it's a serious sport. It's not just turn, go fast and turn left. It's real stuff. So I really want you to tell some stories, drop some names, and just give us the whole experience. Well, be glad to. And uh, let me start out by saying this. I grew up on an 800-acre dairy farm. It was in the family. And uh, you just played... uh, the music that I grew up listening to, but we go on back to uh, Tex Ritter. Uh-huh. You remember him? Yes. One of your first singing cowboys. Tex Ritter stayed with us. No kidding. Uh, when he came to High Point, he did a stage show there, brought her theater, and he brought his horse lightning. And we had a big old barn called a bull barn, and uh, my daddy sold liquor to the guy that ran all the theaters in High Point. And when the cowboys would come to High Point, North Carolina, we got to keep all the horses. So, uh, I grew up with them. I got to steal the, the, the one sheet that they signed for me. Uh, Lice LaRue become a personal friend. Tex Ritter, Sunset Carson, and, and on and on and on. But uh, they were my heroes. And in addition to that, uh, the other heroes of mine, of course, was my daddy and Bonnie Flock, Bob Flock, Ed Samples, Red Byron. And, and I, I was in heaven. Kids today will never, ever experience what I experienced. It just uh, it'll never happen again. But uh, and then you played Marty Roberts. Uh, Robbins, one of my favorites, and uh, I, I remember meeting him at uh, Charlotte, and also down in Atlanta. He drove a car that Cotton Owens sort of kept it up, and, uh, and I was building engines for American Motors and Jim Pascal back in uh, 71 and was at Columbia Speedway, a night race, and uh, on the uh, scoring, our judges. Uh, Flagman stand. I get it right here. Uh, right out over the speedway, they put him up in the flag stand, shine the spotlight on him, and there was Marty Robbins with his guitar, and he sang a white sport coat. And that just don't get no better than that. But uh, uh, that's just sort of an example of how I grew up and uh, what I dealt with day in and day out. And uh, never called it anything but enjoyment. I never complained about the work. We'd work seven day a week. We had to. Uh, it's just something that we did, and we had a passion for it. Now we'll go back to the early days, uh, Robert. Uh, when I was three years old, I went to my first race. Now I don't know much about what I remember, but they built a racetrack across the street from the Dury, uh, one mile dirt, patterned after the design of Indianapolis, 
And uh, nowadays they call it progressive banking. Back then they called it saucer-shaped. It was sort of flat down on the inside track, but as you began to get to the outside of the track, it, it had a lip in it, and it ended up being you know, more bank up against the wall. And they had, like, railroad ties with tuba eight as a, as a wall, you know, or fence. But I went to that race with my mother. My daddy was already there, and uh, and he met all the other drivers because they come across the street to get chocolate milk from the dairy. And uh, we had a whole yard full of race cars, mainly 39 Fords. And in that group was Lloyd C., uh, Roy Hall, Bill France driving the number 21 car that uh, belonged to uh, uh, Raymond Parks. And my daddy, his car was number two, and he put it on there with shoe polish. It was a pretty new 39 Ford. And uh, when I say pretty new, they'd, uh, I mean, you know, 1941's when the race was, but 39 Ford was the car of choice for liquor haulers and, and racing. And uh, a lot of the times, uh, I've got pictures of my daddy actually racing the liquor car. He had three of those different colors because you didn't want to go back to Martinsville. <laughs> it was always the same color of car because that would be uh, noticeable, so they would uh, switch them out. And uh, a lot of the uh, liquor haulers, they painted their cars very often, and uh, they'd paint them with a paintbrush, you know. They didn't care about what they looked like as long as it didn't look like it did last week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway... Uh, yeah, I was there three years old, and I just all I can remember is the crowd. Never seen nothing like that. See, uh, in those days, Robert, the, the biggest attraction would be an air show at the uh, High Point Greensboro Airport. And, uh, you know, at this track up there, they had 10,000 people. That's one of the largest crowds ever to attend an event in, in North Carolina at that time. But, uh, you know, uh, years later, uh, you hear them still talk about what happened at the High Point Speedway because they only run four races and the war came. They shut it down. Investors uh, foreclosed on it, so they had to sell it at auction. They tried to sell it to the Blair boys. It was seven boys, and they voted four to three not to buy it. And uh, the younger boys, including my daddy, they wanted it. And the people who built it was the Beatty brothers out of Yakinville, North Carolina. They had been to Indianapolis prior to this and uh, they come back and wanted to build a, a track here similar and they were playboys and you've heard of Beatty Tire I think they sponsored Jeff Gordon years ago and he got started in the midgets South California but uh, some of them still living and uh, still see them but uh, you know I just felt like that I can remember the race in fact I've got some footage of that race and uh, I you know, how many people are left living today that would be in 1941 at a racetrack where Lord C raced and won the race? It's probably not many. Probably not many. But uh, that's where I got started, and then the war came. My daddy went to uh, Baltimore Harbor to uh, build battleships, and uh, mother and I would go up about once a month catch a train. And uh, he come back, being they didn't buy that one mile track, he just got mad and built his own racetrack. And he built it right next door with him and his brother Bob. They built a high-mile dirt track called Tri-City Speedway. And by then, I was old enough to really start remembering and uh, start, I mean, that's all I could really 
study was racing. The first two words I put together was race car. Good for you. Yeah, that's the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> I had a two-syllable word, race car. And uh, all the, you know, the guys, and they were really, Robert, they were the, the real legends. I mean, racing as we know it didn't start until about 19, I guess it was 39, down in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. Joe Littlejohn put it on at the fireground there. And he'd been down to Daytona where they run that uh, beach and road course that the J.C.'s put on. And then uh, later on, Bill France and a friend of his went together and, and put a race on. And uh, then France took over and uh, promoted his own races at Daytona Beach. And uh, Joe Littlejohn was there. And my daddy... Went there in 40, well, after war, I guess it'd be 46 and uh, 47, and carried his car down there and raced it, finished fourth. And they had, I guess, 50, 60 cars. But, you know, they moved that track four times as they started as up around Ormond. And uh, then people started moving in and uh, they kept moving it south and uh, ended up, I, I guess, it would be. Uh, Early 50s, the last time they moved, it was down there towards the uh, lighthouse. But uh, my first trip down there was in 51. So uh, I just know that when you go out 92, which is now Speedway Boulevard, uh, it dead ends, you know, to South Atlantic. And there was only about six, seven, eight motels, and that was it. And uh, one of them was called the Sunrise, and that was owned by somebody here in High Point. I don't remember the name. But we stayed over in Holly Hill. That's where most of the racers stayed. And uh, it was five laws a night. They didn't care how many slept in the room. <laughs> and uh, some of the perks was you'd go out and pick you an orange and eat if you want to because they was growing oranges out there in the yard. And I've never seen nothing like it, you know. But, uh, yeah, you know, that's a brief description of just how things bounced with me. But uh, one of the interesting things, subjects that I hear people talk a lot about, and each one's got their own version of it, but, uh, you know, I told you my daddy built his own track, he had Bob, and uh, they opened in June of, of 47, and they sanctioned with Bill France, uh, France had an organization called the uh, NCSCC, National Championship Stock Car Circuit, and the only thing that you could identify with, they had a ball cap on, and it had the abbreviation. At, uh, on their ball uh, cap. And uh, all the two people I remember seeing having those would be Alvin Hawkins, the flagman, and Bill France. Now, Bill France flagged a lot of those early races himself. And, uh, but anyway, that's where it started. My daddy sanctioned with him. And uh, France would come by the house, and uh, he and Annie, and uh, this was before they moved uh, here and lived on Lee Street in Greensboro. And they'd stay with us, and they loved my mother's cooking. Bill France always bragged about it. But uh, what he would say, and I won't quote him what he'd say, and, and my daddy called up Jim Lou Allen, Jim Pascal, Pap White, Johnny Grubb, the guys right around here. And, and you got to remember, at that point in time, there was more stock car, race car drivers right here at High Point and right around here than any other town in the country, including Atlanta. So there's a lot of them here in France who come here, and... Uh, They'd all come over there, and they sat under the big oak tree right in front of that bull barn where the cowboys kept their horses. I just think about that. You know, the cowboys kept their horses there, and Bill France come there and talked about what he wanted to do. And 
I built me a tree house up in the tree to listen to all that. <laughs> and I got so involved in it that that's all I could talk about. In my spelling book, I put pictures of the race car, race car drivers. And at the end of the year, this is third grade now, uh, the teacher walked me home because I didn't live too far from old country school, maybe a mile. And uh, she wanted to meet my mother and daddy. And she told them, said, I can pass him, but he really needs to stay another year in the third grade because, you know, he didn't do nothing to talk about race cars. And uh, and I, she told my mother and daddy, said, I know who Fonny Flocky is, Red Byron. Every Monday, that's all he talks about, who won the race. And, but anyway, I failed the third grade. I don't care So... Uh, but anyway, you know, France would tell those guys, he said, look, we need to stick together. If we can stick together, we can make something of this, and we'll all benefit. We'll all benefit from this. And uh, I recall my daddy, I didn't go, but he went down around Federal and run a race that France was putting on, and it was a bad day, you know, it looked like it's going to rain. And he, he got the guys together and said, look, uh, I'm not going to have enough money to pay the purse today, but if y'all stick with me uh, and let's run this race, I'll make it up to you. And uh, y'all both see what you want to do and let me know. So my daddy spoke up, and I'm quoting what my daddy said. He said, well, we're already here. He's always done what he said he'd do. He said, I'm for staying and racing. And France had told him, you know, it looked bad on our behalf if if y'all here and there's not a lot of people here and we just don't have this race, you know. It wouldn't look good on us. So they all voted to do that. Now, the narrative of that, Robert, would be that those guys sort of trusted Bill France and believed in him at that time. Because he was only one, and he'd been a racer. He raced right up here at High Point Speedway, and my daddy had met him, of course, uh, uh, there. And uh, after the war, when he went to Daytona, he, he met him again down there. But... Uh, and that line home Pennsylvania, Lord C won it. My daddy finished second, an old beat up Ford. But, uh, so, you know, when it, he ran an ad a little bit later on in the Speed Age magazine. It's in the back of your very, very early Speed Age magazines about his organization. And he also advertises in there that there's going to be a big meeting in Daytona Beach. And that was going to be like in, uh, I guess, November. December of 1947, and he's inviting all of the uh, promoters and racers to come to Daytona Beach and meet at the Ebony Room at the Streamline Hotel at such and such a time. And uh, so that's what they did, and uh, they had the big meeting, and I can't tell you how many was there, but you've seen pictures of the people that were there, no doubt. Looked like they were 17, 18, 19, 20, something like that, and of course I recognized some of them, and my dad did go, but uh, him and Lou Allen were invited. I mean, Jimmy Lou Allen, a local racer here. Well, anyway, uh, you're going to hear a lot of different stories about that meeting and, and what took place. But uh, when it come time to uh, uh, decide who the president and so forth was, it ended up being Bill France. And uh, the uh, treasurer was Marshall Tigg, uh, Ed Otto, at that time, he didn't come, but later on, he became a silent partner. But uh, you had Bill Tuthill, and I think he was the vice president, and Osinski was the uh, the lawyer for him. 
and uh, Ed Samples was going to be the tech guy. But they're all racers involved in this part of the country have been racing together, and uh, and uh, they were trying to pick a name for it, and there was different uh, names submitted, and they couldn't, at the first go-round, they didn't uh, reach a conclusion of what they should call it. And uh, Red Fault out of Atlanta, he and Raymond Parks were thinking about starting their own organization, and the reason they didn't, France found out about it, and ask them to hold off that they have having a big meeting in Daytona and that they were being invited to come down and be a part of it. Well, he suggested uh, the word NASCAR. That's what they were going to use. And some of them thought it sounded too much like Nash car, you know, the automobile Nash. Mm-hmm. But uh, they voted and decided that's what they was going to call it. So hence NASCAR started. And uh, then I guess the first race would have been at Daytona Beach there. And, uh, but that's how she got started. Now, the other stories you hear is going to be, well, so-and-so really started, meaning that uh, it wasn't Bill Francis' idea, meaning that their daddy was going to be the guy that was going to run it. But, uh, you know, Red Ball worked all the time, and, and he, though he was heavily involved, uh, I guess, in my opinion, he was much relieved about France going ahead and doing it because France could talk to people and people would listen to him and he was just just a guy to do that and uh, but you know that's the way I remember it and uh, that's the way my daddy always told it and I got to listen to a lot of it and uh, for many many years that's the way everybody remembered it because uh, his first racing really, uh, that he was sanctioning would be the old modified on a half mile dirt, fire grounds and so forth before there was a strictly stock, you know in, in 49, it was all the top series was the modified Why do you, you I was going to ask you uh, and we got a few minutes left here sure. why do you think that High Point there was a high concentration of racers up in, in your neck of the woods so that's just north of Mooresville North Carolina there you know just I'm trying to put in perspective so people know where High Point is it's south of Greensboro there um, why do you think it is that uh, that there was a, a high uh, a strong concentration of uh, drivers out of your area well there was a lot of bootleggers here <laughs> and, okay. uh, I mean you got to face facts uh, bootleggers and the whiskey haulers were really the people uh, that had enough money to really get involved in racing. Okay. And, uh, a lot of your racetracks, like uh, Tri-City Speedway, my daddy, I mean, that was liquor money. Uh, Wilkesboro was liquor money. Martinsville was liquor money. Uh, Charlotte was uh, the new, what they call the New Charlotte Speedway, that three-quarter mile track. That was liquor money. So uh, just remember, that's not long after the, uh, the Depression. Okay. And, uh, these guys... Uh, I mean, you know, that, that's why you can make real money. So that's why I believe that uh, there's many involved here. There was many bootleggers out of here. And, of course, they learned their skill of driving running from here up to Virginia. And they could go to either Wilkesburg, Bartsville, or run on up to uh, Franklin County, Virginia. Um, but that's, I mean, Highway 220 and 421, that it was constant uh let me tell you a story about my daddy getting chased or run. <laughs> okay, we got two minutes. We got two minutes. About two and a half minutes. Can you do okay, it? Okay, he was coming Christmas 
Christmas Eve out of Martinsville, Virginia, 125 gallons, and it started snowing on Christmas Eve, 1932. It had a brand-new 32 Ford. He had a shotgun passenger with him. Wow. And the car was sitting low, and it came through Martinsville, and the ATS sitting there and saw him go by, and, and uh, they had started after him. And uh, when he got to the Dan River Bridge, going to come into North Carolina, it was blocked. They blocked it off. So he spun it around in the road and uh, headed back to Martinsville. And uh, the guy that chased him had to run into the ditch and to keep hitting his head on. And then the two guys there, ATF agents sitting at the bridge, they start shooting at him and, and chasing him. Oof. And so when he gets back into uh, Martinsville, well, it's blocked off, 58 is, so he can't go north. So they chased him around the square and made about four or five laps. So they got the rear tire shot down on it and got him stopped and run over there and grabbed him out of the car and threw him down the ground and kept him and carried him up the steps there at the jail to the courthouse right there at the square and uh, booked him and didn't have enough money left to, to go to bond. His buddy did, but he didn't. So uh, the magistrate called home. Now, Bill's daddy, Mr. Blair, started two churches here in High Point, North Carolina, started the Elks Lodge, and uh, he was in legislation down in Raleigh for six weeks out of the year. Pretty well-off guy, you know, in the lumber business and all that. Uh, land business, really, land development and so forth at that time. And, and uh, he'd buy and sell parcels for development. Well, see, High Point was a thriving community, so it was beginning to boom around here. Well, he called him up and uh, said, uh, this is John Branson Blair. And Mr. Blair said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? Well, you got a son named William Ivy Blair. And he said, uh, yes, sir, what can I do for you? What's the matter? And uh, what's the problem? Magistrate said, uh, well, this is so-and-so magistrate up here in Martinsville, Virginia. And we just caught your son with 125 gallons of non-tax-paid liquor. And he don't have enough money to go with bond. So Mr. Blair thought a minute, and he said, well, sir, let me tell you what you do. Me and you caught him, you keep him, and hung the phone up. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's mother the next day sent the oldest brother, Garland, to get him out, and it cost $10 to get him out. Then he went to the Western District Court of uh, Virginia, which was Danville, and it cost him $100. And we got the receipts for that, got a newspaper article about the chase and, and uh, throwing him in jail and all. And... Uh, but that's, that's what they did back then, and he didn't do it so much for the money. Uh, his aunt got run over and left him a farm and some money, so, you know, he didn't need to make money. But he did it, by golly, because it's fun, and he liked the challenge. And uh, a lot of those guys back in those days, it's the same deal for them. I mean, you know, they met periodically at certain places in town. They'd sit around and, and talk about what they'd done, you know. You know, got run. They always said, well, he run me from there to here, you know. They never called it a chase, but that's the way he grew up, and that's why he sort of got started in racing, and a lot of those guys is very, very similar. So I could tell you, when you got time, I'll tell you a bunch of tales. We'll get into that part of it. Well, I'll tell you what, Bill, we are just about up against the clock, but this is what I want to do, because your stories are so good, and I'd like to just pick up where you left off and just keep telling us cool stories like that. So I'll tell you what, another six months down the road, I'm going to invite you back and have you tell us more moonshine stories, racing stories, and uh, talk about some of the legends. How about that? I'll be glad to. Love to. Okay. So, hey, real quick, before we go, tell everybody how they can find out about you, because you do a show as well. Yes, it's uh, Ghost Tracks and Legends. It's I, I, can't, uh, I Cast Radio. 
and it's every Thursday night at 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. And uh, those that just uh, this, this go on uh, uh, the Internet, you'll find it. And it, like I said, it starts at 7, runs for about an hour, hour and a half. And every Thursday night, or you go on my page, Bill Blair, and get a link to it and uh, watch it. It's free. Uh, you want to sign up, you can. And uh, we archive every, every show, and you can go back later and uh, list to any of them. Super. So about a little over a year's worth of them. Okay, but great. It's, it's the legends that we, you know, we talked to people who used to race. Last week we had a moonshiner and then a racer. Yes, that was his life, much like Junior Johnson. Wow. Bill, we're out of time, so I want again, I want to thank you. Thank my special guest this evening, Bill Blair Jr. Don't forget to check out his uh, weekly show here. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday night here on the Tantalk Radio Network, between 7 and 8 p.m., for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. I want to see you guys at some of the car shows. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.